Mark chapter 8, starting at 22. It says, When they arrived at Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus, and they begged him to touch the man and heal him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And then spitting on the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked, Can you see anything now? The man looked around and said, Yes, he said, I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. And then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and his eyes were opened. His sight was completely restored, and he could see everything clearly. And Jesus sent him away, saying, Don't go back to the village on your way home. And then verse 27, Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. And as they were walking along, he asked them, Who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, and others say you're one of the other prophets. And then he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, You are the Messiah. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Let's be seated together. I've got a few pictures here I want to show you of these areas. That the village of Bethsaida means it means uh house of fish or something that's kind of like probably fish processing and so on up there. In the Roman world at that time, we, we've learned that um, there's this kind of a fish sauce that was kind of across everything. It'd be like today's ketchup or in California, salsa. I mean, just everybody used this kind of fish sauce everywhere. And this is Bethsaida today. It is pretty, I'll be honest with you, if you're going to go to Israel, this is one of the less inspiring sites, I just got to say. It's a bunch of rocks. Um, but it's up on a hillside. If you're looking at the Sea of Galilee, it's kind of on the northeast corner of the, or northeast point of the, of the Galilee. And we're just above the Sea of Galilee. So that's one, I'll get you one more picture of here. Uh, homes, this is kind of an area of the homes were kind of all built with this basalt, uh, rock, volcanic rock, uh, all around there. This picture is the other location. So that was the first location that Jesus had taken this, he'd, was with the disciples in Bethsaida. That's where the man was healed. Now I'm going to take you much further north. This is in Caesarea. Let's just go back one, if you don't mind, John. Uh, this is forward one. Caesarea Philippi. Um, so the history of Caesarea Philippi uh, was uh, it was it had earlier been uh, really a center of Greek uh, worship, um, maybe third century and during the time of, of the Hellenists, and it was called Banias or Pania. Um, named after the god Pan, or Pan, and Pan, the god, was kind of known, it was the, the, the god of kind of wildness and, and um, kind of debauchery and kind of, kind of wild living. And uh, so this place had really developed as a shrine to the god Pan in earlier centuries, and, and uh, including there was a kind of a deep cave that there was a spring of water that came out of that, and there was the sense that that was a kind of an opening to the abyss. If you went down that hole is still there, but an earthquake a couple thousand years ago shifted that and the spring comes out somewhere else. Let's go to the next picture. And uh, over time they had kind of carved these niches in the rock, and so you can imagine they would have little gods and goddesses kind of parked around there in the mountainside. So what happens by the time of Jesus, uh, Philip, uh, Herod Philip, or Philip um, uh, the Tetrarch, he was the son of Herod the Great, had rebuilt this city as kind of a tribute uh, to to the Caesar. So it's called Caesarea Philippi. He named it after the Caesar, and he named it after himself. So it was kind of my gift to Caesar, and uh, and Herod's dad was, um, of course, had been a great builder of many things, 
And uh, that's Herod the Great, the one who tried to kill Jesus, of course. Uh, and so that's what had this place had really developed. It was also along the main kind of international highway called the, the Way of the Sea, Via Maritima. And, uh, and this had, was something of an administrative center for um, Philip's uh, governance in that area. Let's go, I got one more picture for you. And this is up, yes, you are in fact just looking at a, at a wall. And I, I, you're wondering why would I show that to you. I just wanted to reveal to you. Of course, much, when you go to Israel, much of what you see has been kind of reassembled. But uh, I wanted to show you this because this is a, this style of rock, and that's why we know it was influenced by Herod at the time. This style of rock is a Herodian building style where they, uh, you, you see how the rocks have a kind of an outline where it's ch- chiseled back a little bit. That's a Herodian building style, and so everywhere you see those rocks, then you know Herod was here, and uh, he built that place up. In earlier times, there's kind of a long pagan history with Caesarea Philippi, or this area. It was called, it was called Tel Dan, or um, it was a place of worshipping the Baals. And uh, that starts back in the time of Jeroboam, King Jeroboam, when the, when the nation of Israel split after King Solomon and his son Rehoboam got the southern portion and Jeroboam got the northern portion. And uh, you didn't know you were getting a history lesson today, did you? And, uh, and Jeroboam had, he didn't want people going back to the southern part of Israel, to Jerusalem, to worship God. So he set up a worship point of worship here at Tel Dan, did a replica of the altar that was in the temple, but it was he set up bulls to worship and kind of took people into pagan worship. And that also happened in this place. So this place, Caesarea Philippi, has kind of a long history of pagan worship, uh, idolatry, and uh, sort of that kind of really far from God. So it's interesting that Jesus brings his disciples there uh, to reveal who he is, the Messiah, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, uh, unlike any other. All right, little uh, kind of backstory for you. All right, so we've got these two episodes, Jesus with the, the blind man that's, that he heals and Jesus with his disciples. And I don't think it takes much to see that Mark uh, kind of mashed up these two episodes together on purpose. It's about getting a clearer vision of just who Jesus really is. And it's it's what we do every Christmas. We're, we're retelling the story. We're trying to give you a clear picture and a clear vision of Jesus. The Messiah, that he's real, that he's alive, that he's the son of God, who he came in the flesh for our benefit, right? He's not a man who became, he's not a man who became God, right? Nor did he lose his deity when he became a man. He's not half man, half God. He's fully God, fully man. That's the, that's the kind of the message of this. Uh, one of Jesus' names is Emmanuel, which means God with us. We call it the incarnation. Jesus becomes one of us. And so you got to just think about that. God with us in the flesh. Hard to believe. Hard to believe. So Jesus takes the blind man, takes him out of the village in order to give him sight. Happens in two stages. First he gets kind of this partial vision back. And then he gets kind of full vision. And once he's healed, then Jesus compels him not to go back to where the skeptics are in the village. And then likewise, again, we got these two parallel episodes, these incidents here. Likewise, Jesus takes the disciples away. He's going to give them spiritual sight. It happens in two stages. First, this sort of partial vision of, what do the people say about me? Who do the people say that I am? Well, you're, you're a prophet, basically. And then that second stage of clear vision 
But who do you say that I am? You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. And then once they, once they kind of get it, same thing. He compels them to silence. And, uh, and later on is when they'll get to share. Now, I find the story of the blind man's healing to be honestly really encouraging. Because it doesn't appear that he had a lot of hope for healing. Because it says his friends brought him. Verse 22. Some people brought a blind man to Jesus and begged him to heal them. I'm not sure why they felt they needed to beg Jesus for healing. But maybe desperation is a good thing anytime. And then what I do love about the both episodes is that while Jesus takes the, the blind man, he takes him away from the village, away from the onlookers, away from the like skeptics or curious people or the noisemakers. He just wants to get him where he can really get his attention. And likewise for the disciples, the, the journey up to Caesarea Philippi, it's quite a, quite a lot further north, so they're, they're going together. And he's taking them away from the regular routine and all the familiar noise. Why? Because he wants to get their full attention. And to me, this just illustrates that Jesus really loves you. He really does. And he's, he loves you so much so that he's eager to have your attention. He wants to connect with you. And it's what Christmas is about. Jesus coming to us, not us reaching to God, but God reaching to us through Jesus, inviting us to know Him that way. So if you're taking notes today, if you've got your little booklet, um, you could write it down this way. Let Jesus get your attention. In all this season, all this busyness, all this going on, I want to tell you, let Jesus get your attention. You know, I've been wrestling with a little bit of an internal conflict in my life, and maybe you, maybe you do sometimes too. It's no secret that I have the attention span of a gnat. Um, so focus is really, really hard for me. I mean, I just constant, just, just, you know, my brain just doesn't work that way like so many of you. And it's worse in a smartphone world with notifications and, right, and, and just, Distraction available. Of course, we depend on our devices for communication and scheduling and connection and entertainment. I mean, it's just all these things bundled into one. But I think the smartphone really is killing our mental and spiritual focus. It's killing us. And I, I you know, I think I, 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 sh- I should just throw this thing away. But, you know, it's pretty tethered to our lives. And Well, when, you know, it's about focus. It's about Letting Jesus get your attention. And when you look over the course of your week and all those distractions and all those interruptions and all the notifications and all the texts and emails and Snapchats and everything else, when you think about the course of your week, is there any time that you slow down to let Jesus get your attention? Is there any time you just slow down to let Jesus get your attention? Some call it a quiet time or daily devotions. Um, I just... I just recommend it. You know, I've got, I set up a table at the back there, uh, today. We use, we recommend a little tool here we call it the R&R journal. It just means read and respond. And, uh, I've shared it with you before, but I'll explain it again that you just, you get a journal and it's got a reading plan that'll just give you something to read every day. You read the passage and you watch for a verse or two that kind of sticks out to you. You write it down in your journal. You respond to that. You reflect on that and write a kind of a written response and you kind of conclude with a prayer. It's not difficult to do. Uh, it takes somewhere between 10 and 
25 minutes, depending kind of how much time you want to give to it. If you already have a journal, or if you have a booklet you like to use in your own, or you just say, well, I'm just not a journaler, Brian. I just would really encourage you to try it. But if you're not a journaler, that's okay, too. I've just printed copies of the plans. I've got two reading plans, one that's going to get you through the whole Bible in a year. It's not as kind of overwhelming as you think. But some of you have said, you know, I've never actually read through the Bible. 2020? Let's do it. Why not? Uh, so I've got a Bible in a year plan. Or if you're kind of new to the Bible and you just kind of want to get your, kind of dip your toe in the pool a little bit, I've got one that's called the Fresh Start Plan. Gets you through the New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs in a year. So I've got copies of the plans and I've got the journals. We, we encourage you to donate $5 for the journal just to cover the cost. Um, but that'd be a great way to invest in your spiritual life in 2020. It's about letting Jesus get your attention. You can also train yourself to let Jesus get your attention just through the course of the day. You know, maybe through a song on the radio or or a conversation at the grocery store. You know, the point is that Jesus loves you and he wants to reveal himself to you more and more. If you let him get your attention. Now, there's a reason why it matters. Okay, there's a reason why it matters because... You see, a partial vision of Jesus is really unsatisfying. It's, it's really uninteresting. It's unsatisfying. It's misleading. Like, imagine that the guy who was healed just was, you know, got halfway to his healing. Well, I, I can, you know, yeah, I can sort of see. I mean, I'm still bumping into stuff. and, and uh, But, you know, I, I can see. It's not like I can't see. I mean, I can see. I mean, yeah, I've got a lot of bruises and I stub my toe all the time and I walk into things. and But, but I can, I mean, I can sort of see. You know, that would be pretty an unsatisfying way for him to live. Or, or, you know, the first question that Jesus asked his disciples, you know, who do people say that I am? And John, maybe, or Elijah back from the dead, or another prophet, right? Yeah, they got it. You know, people understood that it was someone sent from God, like a prophet would be, but a wrong understanding of Jesus. And it matters that you get your vision clear about Jesus. It matters that you have a good understanding of who Jesus is. A full, clear vision. And I, I would just say it this, this way. Don't be satisfied with fuzzy faith. Don't be satisfied with, with blurry faith, with fuzzy faith. Unclear, unsure. You know, I meet all the time, people, I meet people all the time who, they have faith in Jesus for salvation, but they're really fuzzy on who Jesus is, you know, what he's done for us. They're unclear on doctrine. Don't really know why we believe what we believe. They don't really understand the message of God's grace for us. We're easily, you know, in those cases, led astray and confused. And we don't really know what the Bible says versus what the culture demands when our faith is fuzzy. We're kind of there, but kind of not sure. You know, I, I was reading some surveys this week. There's surveys say that the majority of Christians, the majority of people who claim to be Christian in America, the majority, like more than half, would say that you can be saved by being a good person or saved by a combination of being a good person and believing in Jesus. That's the opposite of the gospel of grace. The point is you, you can't be a good enough person to be saved because you'd have to be perfect and you can't be perfect how good is good enough is, do you just have to be better than the next guy or gal and and the majority of people really believe that well if i'm just you know a good enough person you know i figure i'll get there on what basis 
How would that qualify you? And so that's what fuzzy faith does. You, you don't even understand your own salvation when it's like that. And there, there's a huge percentage of Christians, we read this too, that they believe other religions lead to salvation. Well, you know, if you're really sincere about your, you know, other religion, then you can be saved. No. No, you need to have a clear vision about who Jesus is. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. Nobody. Jesus isn't being mean. You don't, you don't think, well, God's so cruel to know. No, you've got to understand, God loves the world so much, right? He gave us Jesus so that we could be saved, so we wouldn't constantly be grasping up for salvation, but instead... Recognize that it's God that reaches down to us for salvation. Do you see the difference? In every other system, whether it's a religious system, atheism, anything else, it's all about somehow reaching out to be good enough. And it's only in the gospel of God's grace that we recognize we can't be good enough and God in His mercy reaches to us. That's what we call the good news. But if you don't have clear vision, if you don't have a, uh, you know, if you're stuck in a fuzzy faith, you're not going to get that and you're certainly not going to be able to communicate that. And the Apostle Peter, who's probably responsible for the content of Mark's Gospel, wrote warnings to the churches later on about false teachers and about the importance of good doctrine. And he, he closed his second letter this way. Second Peter chapter 3 at the end says this way. He says, you already know these things, dear friends. So be on your guard. Then you will not be carried away by the errors of these wicked people and lose your own secure footing. Rather, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He wants you to grow in grace and knowledge in your faith and in your understanding. Head and heart, heart and hands, knowing and doing, all those things. It's it's that whole spectrum. And of course, you've heard me warn many times that knowledge without application is just going to puff you up into arrogance. And you're actually going to just become a Pharisee if that's if that's how you do that. If you're truly growing, though, in your knowledge... Of Jesus, your life is going to change because you're just going to change, keep changing your heart too. Too many people, you know, will study the Bible without it letting God's, without letting God's word change them. That's why we grow in both grace and in knowledge. So I would just say, you know, as you're thinking about the end of this year and the thing of 2020, why not do something that's going to grow your life in grace and knowledge to clarify your faith, get past that fuzziness. Read a book. Some of you haven't read a book since high school. Really. Most people haven't. Read a book this year. If you're not sure what you read, ask around. Talk to me. Talk to Pastor Stephen. We'd be happy to direct you to something that's going to kind of help you grow, challenge you. Attend the Alpha course. Join a small group. Lead a small group. Actively serve others. Ask questions. Participate in the the 21 days of prayer and fasting that's coming up in January, starting January 6th. Follow a good podcast, right? Take notes during the message, whatever it is. Just don't be satisfied with fuzzy faith. Get it clarified. Because a day is coming when your faith is going to be assaulted. Maybe you've already been through that. You know, a family member is going to make a break from, from biblical faith and they're going to try to take you with them. Or a co-worker is going to kind of bring you the latest 
thinking on atheism or a classmate is going to raise some objections to the faith. And if your faith is fuzzy, you're going to be like, ah, yeah, um, I'm not really sure. Well, uh, it's not very... It's not a very convincing way to live. You're bumping into trees when you're doing that. Maybe there's a clever Facebook post on a social issue like abortion and suddenly your convictions are going to be challenged. Get a clear faith. Get past the fuzziness. Because a fuzzy faith doesn't equip you for those moments. And the real reason is because you have an inadequate view of Jesus. Jesus, the only way to salvation, fully God, fully man. And, and his word, the Bible, is completely true, cover to cover. The hope of Jesus is your only hope. In Mark 8, back to the passage here, we wonder why Jesus even would use this two-step kind of process with a blind man. Like, why not just kind of heal him right away? A little weird, the spitting in the eyes thing, that's, you know, for the... Germophobes among us, that's kind of a nightmare. All right. I mean, seriously, like, wasn't there a little bit of you that was like, ooh? Like, really? I mean, right? Here's what I think. I think he was building the man's faith. Because first it was the friends who brought the man. I don't think the man necessarily, like, was really understood who Jesus is and why this mattered and what this man could do for him. He hadn't seen him. He didn't kind of know exposure maybe to Jesus. But in the second step, the man's faith is activated. Can you see? Ah, kind of, sort of. But at that moment, I think sometimes we view a partial answer to prayer as a failure, when in fact, that partial answer to prayer ought to boost us to keep going, to keep praying, keep asking, to recognize, okay, God's at work. It's my faith it needs to grow in this setting. And likewise, I would say for the great revelation to, to Peter, who do people say that I am? Right? It's that moment of shifting from, from thinking what everyone else thinks to thinking for yourself. To wrestling it to the ground, to make up your own mind, to get clarity on your convictions and to stick to them from fuzzy to clear. I think that's why it, it's helpful to see this two-stage process. Now, how clear is your vision of Jesus? Do you know for sure that He's the way, the truth, and the life? Do you know for sure that He's the only way to God the Father? Do you love His Word, the Bible? Do you know that, that there is a moment of saying, I have faith, I can't, there is an element of, I don't fully understand everything, I get that, because that's part of what faith is. I can't comprehend everything about God. But are you building your life on the sure foundation of hearing and applying Jesus' teaching? That's the challenge, to move out of a fuzzy faith. Now, let's finish with this very curious pair of statements from Jesus. And by finish, I don't mean in the next couple minutes, okay? Don't you just say it when preachers do that. And for my last point, and then it goes for a while. That's what's happening right now. All right. <laughs> Look at these two statements, this pair of statements. Verse 26, Jesus sent him away saying, hey, don't go back into the village on your way home. Or as you go home, don't go back through the village. And then verse 30, but Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. You can see the obvious kind of parallel between those two. Why, why would he do this? Like, why is Jesus doing this? A couple chapters back, we read that Jesus sent his disciples out to make him known, to preach the gospel of the kingdom, to cast out demons, to heal the sick, right? to do all that stuff. Later on, Jesus is going to command his followers to go into all the world, make disciples of all Jesus' nations, make Jesus known to the whole world. 
What's happening here? Well, I think there's a danger when when God has done a, a good work in your life. There's There's a danger of taking it for granted, of trivializing it. And, and then just going back to those old and familiar places in our lives. The writer of Hebrews wrote this in Hebrews chapter 6. I'll just read it to you. It says, For it's impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the power of the age to come, and who then turn away from God. It's impossible to bring such people back to repentance by rejecting the Son of God. They themselves are nailing Him to the cross once again and holding Him up to public shame. It's one of the most sobering passages in all of Scripture. What happens when, when, when you go back to those old familiar places that maybe weren't healthy and wholesome and a good understanding for you? See, I think by going back to the village, the man may have really been pushed about his new faith or mobbed with, you know, questions about the healing and whether or not they were skeptical or or just curious. He wasn't ready to defend all that. He wasn't ready to kind of explain what he was experiencing. It was the wrong place to test that out, going back to his old setting. And the disciples, right, would would have no advantage revealing the truth of Jesus as Messiah just yet. That would come. But Jesus hadn't yet been crucified, raised, and glorified. The whole package, the story wasn't complete yet. It was too early to do that. And so I really think the the man needed to go first to family and, and the disciples needed to like really soak into this truth. And I would just say it like this. When Jesus does a work, don't go back. When Jesus does a work, don't go back. Don't go back. I think about some of you, even just kind of the things you've been through in your life and some of the hurts you've, you've dealt with and things that didn't go your, your way or relationship struggles or second-guessing, a, you know, decisions you made. Even in those things, it doesn't help to go back and ruminate on those and forgive and move forward. It doesn't help to kind of dig in that, keep digging that up and just... Chewing on it and chewing on it and chewing on it. When Jesus does a work, don't go back. And sometimes there's other things. Someone's had a great salvation experience, but then they, they just want to kind of go back to their old friends and kind of that lifestyle that was not very helpful for them. They haven't made a, enough of a break. We had some friends that I administered to in a previous church. I'll call them uh, Joseph and Mary, just for argument's sake. And... Uh, you know, they had come out of a really tough, you know, really rough life. Uh, that, you know, drugs and alcohol and, and, uh, and yet somehow through all that, you know, they'd held their marriage together and they, they, they come to Christ and they were just really growing in their faith. It was just really sweet. It was pretty simple still, but it was really precious. And they came and said, Hey, we, you know, we're coming on our 25th wedding anniversary and uh, we would like to s- celebrate with a vow renewal and a reception. We didn't do that when we got married the first time and, and, uh, you know, our life's just been so filled with so much chaos. We would like to celebrate with our friends and just thank everybody. I'm like, that is a great idea. So we kind of, as we prepared how that was going to go and kind of saying all, setting it all together. And, you know, they were part of our recovery program. And they said, you know, 
you know, we're going to, I got wind, I don't know if they told me or if I heard that they were going to serve alcohol at the reception. And I just said, hey, I just would really encourage you guys to th- maybe not go there. Just from where you've come from and the kind of progress you've made and God's given you freedom from from uh, those addictions. Wouldn't it be great just to be able to say you can, you don't have to have alcohol to make it special. Just celebrate without it. Just... I'd just be worried. No, no, it's just, you know, for our friends and family, they really expect it and they really need to have that there. And and we're just maybe just going to have a little bit of champagne just to celebrate. I'm like, I just would really caution you not to do that. I think it's a bad idea. But they were set on it. It was going to happen. You know, we're strong now. You know, we've 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 made our progress. And we're, well, we did the ceremony, which was nice enough. But I just had this sick feeling in my stomach and I, I left. I generally don't stay for receptions when we do weddings. People are always more comfortable when the pastor's not there, I've learned. And um, it's true. And uh, and I got wind later that that one glass of champagne turned into a bender. And they just got wasted. Not only that, they never made it back to church. They wouldn't take calls. They wouldn't take any efforts to reach out and welcome them back. Say, hey, look. It's not the end of the world. Let's just move forward. Let's deal with it and move. And they just, we never got them back. I don't even know where they are today. When Jesus does a work, don't go back. Don't, don't say, well, I can kind of sort of go back. Don't go back. If Jesus is doing something new in your life, don't go back. See, Jesus sent the blind man home. He just told him to avoid the village for the time being. And those closest to him, to the man, they needed to see the miracle first and hear the testimony of this Jesus who touched and healed him. The key is that when you encounter Jesus, when we encounter Jesus, he changes our heart, but we change our life. He changes our heart, but we change our life. We take steps. Sometimes we, we find ourselves maybe just adding Jesus to our life, but we're not really making any real change with Jesus. I, I sat with a guy this week who was sharing his testimony with me. It's, wow, it was dramatic, exciting. And he was just saying, he's in his 20s, he was just saying, I, it's like I can't even do those things I used to, even if I wanted to, because Jesus is just so amazing in my life. He's just so real and and I, I just want to stay close to him. I don't, when I'm tempted, I just like, oh, I don't, I don't want to do that. That's a guy who's encountering Jesus for real. And some of you, you might be one of these people, you're making some changes in your life. You're, you're at it. You're pressing forward, but you find yourself, you trip up and you stumble back and you're, you're still turning to things. You feel guilty about it, that you're still using, you know, pornography or, or alcohol or you're, you're still, you know, getting high. You just think, oh, I probably shouldn't be doing this. You're right. You're, but you know what? As you keep bringing that to Jesus, you know, it's been a, a release valve for you a long time. It's been a habit. It's, it's kind of the way you've dealt with stress and pressure in your life. I get that. But as you keep bringing that back to Jesus, as you get little tastes of freedom, you'll, you'll say, oh, freedom's better. And you'll get more and more and more. You'll keep moving in that direction. Look for the progress that you're making, not perfection in your life. But it requires changes of habits and changes of ways you, you always do things. But as that freedom begins to build up in your system, you're like, I like that and I want more. 
When Jesus does a work, don't go back. I invite the worship team to, to join us at this time. Got one more song. We're going to sing it, it. This whole thing begins with this amazing action of Jesus. Letting him get your attention. Not, not just like, yeah, yeah, I get it. I understand. I know anything. No. Not just, I'm not talking about being more religious or being more churched. I'm talking about letting Jesus get your attention. This Christmas, let Jesus get your attention. See, he's the one initiating the relationship with you. So let him in. Click yes to Jesus. And then once you've begun with Jesus, don't be satisfied with getting there halfway. Don't don't be content with a fuzzy faith. It's really unsatisfying. And it's it's not about more Bible knowledge, although that's important too. It's about Jesus. And then don't go back to those places that stir up that doubt and confusion and compromise. You know, and as I shared earlier in the service, if you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never come to that place of confidently knowing that He's your Lord and Savior, it's not difficult. We talk about the ABCs to... A is kind of a double. Admit that Jesus... Admit that you're, you're a sinner in need of salvation and forgiveness. And accepting Jesus as Lord. To believe in Jesus as the Son of God, that He died for your sin and He rose again. He's returning one day. To see is to commit your life to Him as the Lord and leader of your life all your days. Follow Him. To Jesus, you're in charge. A, B, C. Let's bow together in prayer. Jesus, I just think about that blind guy that probably had just accepted that was his fate for the rest of his life. It was never really going to be any better than it was. And Lord, I know it's not really about the blindness, but it was about his encounter with you. And Jesus, I just think about those disciples and just trying to figure out who is this guy that we're following and, and just coming to that revelation of that you are the one that we've been looking forward to, the only one that could rescue us and make us right with God. Lord, I was just asked that in this season of Christmas, we get that second touch from you, that clarity that allows us to see you for who you really are in our lives. And Lord, as that light goes on, we would be compelled to deal with some of the junk in our life. Knowing that you're compassionate and you're merciful and you're gracious. That you would, that we would recognize you take us as we are. We don't have to become something different so we can come to you, but you accept us, you take us as we are. Or we're like that old, that old junker on Craigslist sold as is. That's us and that's how you take us, Lord. And you do that work of repairing and restoring, making all things new. Lord, let us, let us experience that. Let us just engage with that in a fresh way this year. And church, if you, any of you, if you're, if you're in a place where you've not surrendered to Jesus, I just encourage you to do that today. 
Make today the day where say, I'm saying yes to Jesus. If that's you, you can talk to me or someone else after the service. We'd love to help you with that. So Lord, we thank you for the clear vision that, that we get when we're walking daily with you. May you be praised in all these things. Amen.